This podcast is an exploration of decentralized information networks, secure computing, and autonomous software. Technologies that enable new global information networks, collectively known as the Third Web. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. Holochain has been a project simmering in the background of the blockchain space for several years now. The promise has been a panaceic solution to the performance and scalability issues facing decentralized hosting platforms. It's an oft-heard claim, but as founder Arthur Brock expounds in this interview, by giving up our insistence on global consensus in favor of discoverable and verifiable local state, a world of options is open to us. This kind of discussion follows from the secure Scuttlebutt and Urbit episodes. It raises and offers answers to questions of data versus agent-based ontologies. But most interesting of all, it forces us to reconsider why we wanted to use blockchain in the first place. Arthur, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Arthur Brock from Denver, Colorado. And what's your background and, and what, uh, what brought you to uh, the idea of Holochain? It's been a long path, actually. We've been at this for a number of years. Holochain really comes from a couple of parent projects, one of which is the the Metacurrency project, which is really about uh, currencies (laughs) as far more than money, as really um, think of it more like the word current and see like the ability to see currents or flows. And that goes way beyond monetary currencies through reputation currencies and into far more things. It's like the simple systems that we use to coordinate on large scale currents or flows. Um, out of the metacurrency project came a project called Scepter, which is short for Receptor. And it was really as a part of our commitment to enable anybody to transact or interact with anybody else without the need for a third party or intermediary to be involved that is not of their choosing. It turns out that's actually a pretty hard thing to do and involved us reinventing most of the computing and communication stack um, and modeling it on the patterns of nature, which is completely decentralized um, so like the patterns of, you know, cells and body and in bodies and living systems. So uh, Scepter, C-E-P-T-R, uh, is something we've prototyped for a large scale rewrite of computing and commerce and communication. And we took a small piece of Scepter, specifically the way multi-instance receptors synchronize data with each other. And took that out and built a standalone version called Holochain to basically fulfill on the promise of blockchain of having a fully decentralized approach to bring applications and currencies to scale. Okay, so we've covered a whole bunch of ground here, and there are two questions that I'd like to dig into. The first is uh, dates. Can, can, when did you start looking at currency? 
And when did when was Scepter conceived? And then when was when did Holo Chain break off from that? So um, I started getting involved in alternative currencies back in two thousand one. I read a book called The Future of Money by Bernard Leotard and basically discovered that um, things that I had been doing, uh, creating self-organizing companies and uh, things like that, uh, were forms of currency hacking, but I had never thought of them that way before. And I was looking for leverage points for change and discovered what a huge leverage point for change currency is. How if you change the currency, basically the incentives that drive business, for example, then every business will restructure itself to align with that new incentive. So you tap into all of that broad creativity uh, to optimize to a new set of incentives. Around 2003, I, I really switched to doing only currency work um, as my full-time gig. So have, I've been building alternative currency systems for quite a while now. <laughs> and uh, and so and so then and so where did Scepter come about? Scepter came a little bit later. Um, in 2004, I met Eric Harris Brown. Um, a couple of years later, we had kind of merged some of our efforts in the alternative currency space and uh, connected up with some others and created the Metacurrency Project. Scepter really stemmed out of a design session that happened at a retreat in 2006. And we didn't call it Scepter, I think, until September of 2006. The retreat, I think, was February. And uh, it just just began iterating. Eric and I would spend some time together every quarter or so. Um, And then later we started spending more time together, but we just were wanting this work to go deep. It was a, it was a side project, a passion project for us. So it wasn't, we weren't, you know, in a rush. We knew we were pretty far ahead of the curve. So we were really just trying to um, get the design principles right. And so what did it feel like when you saw, and and can you describe the experience of seeing the emergence of Bitcoin? Did that blindside you or did that feel like like the culmination of iterative or inevitable development? It neither blindsided nor felt like a culmination. It felt like a clumsy and ham-handed design that I couldn't understand why everybody else was so excited about. Except it's worked, right? So, I mean, the reason this is you're really interesting to, to talk about, uh, specifically to do with the subject, is that you were working on similar pro, uh, similar problems, and then, and I mean, I, I agree with you to a large extent. I do think that Bitcoin is very clumsy and ham-handed, and uh, as I say from my armchair, but it's it's been so phenomenally successful. And I'm wondering what is it that made Bitcoin successful? Was it the myth of Satoshi? Was it fundamentally uh, amazing design? Because I still acknowledge that it is a beautiful design. Um, what what was it? Right place, right time? Well, I would question your measure of success. Certainly, um, it has captured a, a particular following. 
um, I'm not sure I would call it successful. It does. It's not been successful at accomplishing anything I want to accomplish. So that's why I okay. I so question the measure of success. so. What are those intuitively? Um, how do you interpret what I'm measuring as success in my in an unstated fashion? And what do you want to? What would you hope to achieve with with a new currency? Let me back up one second and, and say I'm not trying to completely dismiss. Bitcoin or blockchain in terms of, um, if nothing else, having prepared consciousness, having prepared people's awareness for the things that we're talking about now. You know, I was talking with people uh, about alternative currencies and these designs. You know, I've been having lots of conversations t- since 2001. And as I said, I've been doing this full time since 2003. And uh Blockchain has altered the discourse that has both positive and negative aspects to it. Um, it has also pulled the center of gravity of the discourse into a little bit of a crazy speculative lunacy. And it's interesting, <laughs> lunacy and moon, right? Like the when moon kind of thing. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> um, the thing for me is, that it recreates all of the unhealthy patterns of our economic system turbocharged. So uh, we definitely need decentralized uh, money and uh, economics, and we need, we need to rewrite some of these patterns and reclaim our power in these domains. But we also need to do it in a, in a manner that is not just amplifying volatility and um, centralizing wealth and, you know, those, those kinds of things. We actually need a, a new, healthier pattern and um, basically just recreating all of the old problems isn't going to get us someplace new. We've just talked a bunch about, uh, about currency that's a really great, uh, great subject matter that I think we can come back to. But um, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you was uh, because I'm personally unsatisfied with a lot of the talk I hear about blockchains as effective application hosting platforms. And this has been a frustration that uh, I felt with Ethereum uh, tremendously. And I've seen Definity make a really plausible and concerted effort to develop a blockchain-based hosting platform, and I think they'll be successful. But at the same time, deep down, I have this ingrained uh, or unshakable uh, problem with the notion that we need to be able to create a global source of truth for every application. Yes, it makes sense with currency and money, um, but it doesn't necessarily make sense with, for example, messaging apps. And so things like Secure Scuttlebutt, I've found particularly interesting. These ideas of uh, subjective append-only logs that we share with our friends. Now, the great thing about Holochain, and we covered this in our, uh, our chat with Pospi over dinner the other day in, uh, in Wellington, is that Holochain has taken the, uh, the, the position that we do not need a, a global source of truth or a, a global record of history for every application. And the idea that you've taken this uh, this piece of scepter and turned it into something that is an alternative um, approach to this decentralized hosting platform is, is really interesting to me. So can we dig into a bit of the way that Holochain works 
And the difference between Holochain, the platform, and Holochain, the cryptocurrency-based uh, hosting platform that you guys raised uh, funding sure. for. That's, that's Holo, the hosting Holo. Platform. Yeah. Bunch of things that you just packaged in there that you bundled in. So, um, yes, you're pointing to one of the core issues, global consensus. Um, actually, consensus. Let me just stick with that and... Mostly what I mean by that is global consensus, but um, I feel like the spotlight in the blockchain space has been very artificially focused on consensus when the issue all along has been actually validation. And let's take Bitcoin as the first original blockchain application, right? You can run whatever Bitcoin mining software you want to produce blocks, but everybody runs Bitcoin Core to validate them, to make sure that they aren't forking themselves into a chain state that nobody else will accept because everybody just ignores you at that point if you have an invalid chain, right? So that's validation versus consensus. That's the power we're leveraging in Holochain by creating an agent-centric approach instead of a data-centric approach, which enables each agent to have their own source chain. This is just a hash chain, not a, not a chain of blocks, but of single state changes. And only the ones that you've produced, that you've written to the system. So if you're running, for example, a peer-to-peer Twitter, then it would be, starts off with the rule set, the Twitter rule set that you are playing by is the first genesis block of every chain. Uh, and it's part of how you know that you are in the same application and network space, because each Holochain application is a separate peer-to-peer network, only synchronizing and validating with the other people playing by those rules. Your your source code of your rules is hashed into your very first entry of your chain. Then there's your identity, basically your address in the space that you're using to communicate and coordinate with others. And then would be, for example, you might register your Twitter username, your Twitter handle, and then uh, might be my first post, you know, hello world, good good tweety morning to you or whatever, right? And uh, <laughs> then might be a follow, like I, I'm going to follow Arthur Falls and, you know, then might be another tweet or things like that. It's only my state changes, not, I'm not, synchronizing anybody else's state changes to my chain. And I sign them to a hash chain and publish to a DHT, a distributed hash table, which is a content addressable, easily shardable space across computers. And uh, we also have our DHT as a validating DHT, Um, So when I publish a tweet or my handle or anything to that DHT, the nodes in that shard of the system that receive it have to validate it in order to serve it out again. So you can never retrieve data from the DHT that hasn't been validated. And it's also completely tamper-proof because it's a content addressable space. If I ask for this address of this hash and you serve me out something else that doesn't hash to that address, then I know that you've altered it. And you have to serve me basically what what I'm asking for, and you can't really alter it (laughs) or you break the hash. Um, And 
in the validation process, we basically have this, this function of provenance where it's tied back to the source chain that it came from. So you have ordering. You have ordering of all event changes in local state. And what, so what you end up having is global discoverability of local state. And our pull for this global state is really a false construct. It's a false way of, it's a lazy way of modeling problems. Because in the real world, there is no global state. There's no global time. There's only relative time and there's only local state. Holochain is modeled after the real world. And we so far haven't seen a single problem, whether that be a currency or anything else, that we can't model more effectively and efficiently on Holochain than can be done on blockchain, including currency. And and so to, to interject, because this is just so astonishingly counterintuitive that you're not insisting on a uh, an idea of kind of global truth i mean it's almost madness so what you're saying is in this model the chain is local and each individual has their own chain that is ordered and describes their uh describes their uh actions uh over time and then that state is uh that chain itself is then um addressed in a distributed hash table that anyone can use to look up any of these subjective local states. Exactly. The entries and headers that have been uh, published to your local chain. So you sign, the headers actually contain the signature um, and a hash of the entry that you created. The entry is the content itself. So the the headers contain the timestamp, hash, and entry, and pointer to the previous header, as well as hash of that entry, right? That's how you're constructing a chain out of those headers. Headers and entries are published to a DHT um, and validated in that DHT that the state change occurred according to the rules that we agreed to follow. So for example, with Twitter, it may be that it follows this data structure, including a limit to the number of characters, right? And that it was signed to your chain. And that may be all we care to validate for Twitter, um, for publishing a new tweet. For editing a tweet, we may need to validate that you are the author of the original tweet or you don't get to edit it, <laughs> right? Um, so there's there, what, you ha- what you do is you build a set of mutual enforcing uh, validation rules and then only things can be published which comply to those rules. So I'll pause there and see if that, if that makes sense. Well, everything you're saying makes sense, but what is bizarre is just how it's the, the, the notion that you would even pick up blockchain as a way of creating a global decentralized system. It seems laughable if you could do it in such a easy less heavyweight fashion and not only that um and i hope you'll forgive me for saying this it seems like holochain is almost an obvious solution to someone who'd actually put the work into understanding how best to solve this problem rather than reverse engineering a solution or you know developing a solution 
from this obscure cryptocurrency that has seen so much acceleration, accelerate, accelerating value growth, you know? Yeah. N- uh, no, no offense taken at all by that statement. Um, I, like I said, we patterned these designs on nature. So anybody who looks at the way the actual world works, especially the biological world, but I would assert the physical world as well, I think they would follow those patterns towards something along the lines of holochain rather than blockchain. Um, In my very first article that I published about this pattern, um, after blockchain had started getting some notoriety, I, I published this thing called Simple Scalable cryptocurrencies. And I put a comic at the beginning of the article where there's a hydrogen atom and a chloride atom. And there's also an oxygen atom there uh, commenting. The chloride atom saying to the hydrogen atom, I'd really like to uh, bond with this electron of yours, but how do I know that you're not double spending it? And the oxygen atom is saying, yeah, I've been burned by that before. What I'm trying to point to with that comic is the ridiculousness of thinking that you need a global ledger that tells you the location of every electron in the universe in order for these two atoms to bond. That's what blockchain does. It takes a data-centric approach. It says data has first-order independent existence, and now in order for us to know the state of data, We all have to have global consensus about every change to this sort of metaphysical existence, exist, you know, data that exists independent of actors. Actors, agents have been removed from the ontology and data exists on its own. And what we're saying is data is always a statement of an agent. It's always a result of an action of an agent. And it can't be broken from its authorship, or that fundamentally breaks data integrity to begin with. An episode or two ago, I kind of clumsily referenced our, our dinner conversation that was totally out of order for the um, for the listeners of this show. Um, when I, I think I mentioned that Urbit was a agent rather than data centric platform or uh, or a network, and what we're discussing right now is this this notion of that agent centricity. So what is the fundamental difference between data centrism and agent centrism? For me, it points to the fundamental foundation of your ontology. And many people aren't familiar with the word ontology. So it's basically about like what you say exists and therefore what you have to build with and build on. So when you start your ontology with the data exists, then that's what you have to build with. Now people are making changes to data and we have to know whether that change to an abstract piece of data is valid, right? But if, for example, that data was clearly mine, as in, in the case of Twitter on Holochain, it was my tweet, I'm the author of it, because all data is connected to it's and signed to a provenance in a particular order of state changes of an agent. Now we have a basis to know whether or not I'm allowed to edit that tweet. And it's not just the fact that I possess the cryptographic key. I mean, yes, that is in fact in Holochain 
how we would validate that I am the author that's changing it. But it, the point is that you you can set different sets of rules. Like in, an, in a wiki system on top of Holochain, I don't have to be the author to change it. But we still need to know that the entry that I'm editing was your entry and the new entry I'm creating is my entry, right? But we're not constrained to only the key holder can edit something in that case, right? Um, so it allows you to have full composability of, of what's possible. And not only that, but it allows you to maintain fundamental integrity. And what I mean by that is if, if you were to look around the room that I'm in right now and say, well, what's the temperature in here? Well, you might say it's, uh, you know, 18 degrees Celsius or, and, and if you had a thermostat on the wall, it would give you a reading. And sort of blockchain's approach is like that one thermostat on the wall is the, is the source of truth. But if I had a little handheld electronic thermometer and could take infrared readings of different places in the room, over there by the window, it's going to be colder. Over there by the heat register, it's going to be warmer. And that, by that light bulb, you know, and I can get a dozen different temperatures in this room and I can record them all as me as an agent using this device to sign them to my source chain and publish them as data I'm finding about the room, which is very useful if tomorrow we find out this infrared thermometer I'm using is 20% out of calibration, because now we know which data is affected by that. If we don't know which data is affected by that, then we don't have any data integrity. Something I've been interested in specifically is looking at um, some of these enterprise applications of blockchain that I see happening. Um, now we're way off uh, off Holochain, but we'll we'll bring it back. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the weirdest things is this idea of permissioned ledgers. And it's not that I find them uh, weird out of hand. Uh, I think it's really great to have a way to bring a bunch of computers to consensus on a kind of a, a mutual state and provide cryptographic auditability of that. But we had that with practical Byzantine fault tolerant consensus back in. 1999. Um, I may be overstating that, but it's, um, you know, we certainly had it before Bitcoin came along. And when Bitcoin came along, what it did was it introduced a new way of achieving consensus. The fundamental difference was that we didn't know who the actors in the network were, who the actors participating in creating this, uh, this global um, data set were. And what's interesting in, in this conversation, or, or what this conversation is making me realize, is that in Bitcoin's ontology, there literally are no actors. Or if they are, they have the tiniest bit of agency. And, um, and you kind of see this with the, the gossip network as well, right? You know, there are just rules by which, um, there, or there are, actually are no rules at all. Um, there, you know, it's just a gossip network, right? There is no... Um, there is no explicit way that you have to participate in the uh, in the Bitcoin network. Well, there's like a number of connections you're supposed to maintain and that you gossip with, and there's some very basic rules. Yeah, but none of those are actually imprinted in the actual um, or embedded into the consensus into the validation part of it. Though. Exactly. So this is like. In the ontology of Bitcoin, and the, and Bitcoin was the platform that kind of gave rise to blockchain itself, there literally is 
uh, either no or almost no concept of the agent, only the data. This is, this is an absolute uh, opposition to reality in which data itself is kind of secondary, or I don't know, I, I'm, maybe I'm overstating this, but... I would agree that it's in opposition to reality, um, that the, the problem of blockchain, but not only blockchain, but as you pointed to um, consensus algorithms that for distributed computing that preceded blockchain is that they've started there in, in their ontology in an intractable state. Basically, they're starting with data as having first order independent existence from agency and time as being something that is possible to have a single described timeline in a massively simultaneous system. We know from the general theory of relativity, right? Things do not happen in the same order in different places, right? There is no absolute timeline. There's only time from a particular vantage point. To force a construct of an absolute timeline on a massively simultaneous system scattered all over the planet is to burn lots of energy on constructing a fiction. Yes, you drop out agents, you drop out any accountability. Now, the reason for that is the, the sort of political agenda of, of Bitcoin and blockchain, a, a sort of a, you know, a crypto anarchist, uh, digital anonymous cash agenda, going for anonymity takes away accountability. Um, I'm not saying anonymity as in I know your, you know, your real name and address and social security number or something like that in order for you to play, like KYC of banks is the only alternative. But, but accountability has to do with a continuity of action. I have to know that you are the same entity that I was interacting with five minutes ago or five minutes from now in order for you to be accountable for your actions. And what, what's interesting is, first of all, the word consensus is a, is a misnomer. It is not anything connected to what we in the human realm call consensus, where you consider the inputs of different alternatives and then arrive at you know, an output. What consensus in distributed computing really is referring to is leader selection, right? It's basically saying, who are we going to believe for this click of the clock, this tick of the clock, right? And so what blockchain did was it originally, you know, it said, here's how we make ticks of the clock. We're going to set them to be 10 minutes and, you know, all the transactions in that 10 minutes go into a single block. And we're going to do leader selection through this horribly inefficient, designed to be inefficient, um, proof of work to randomize who the leader gets to be for this block. And we're going to call that consensus. It would never pass for consensus in the world of human decision-making, right? Like if we wanted to elect somebody to office, elect the next president of the United States, you wouldn't say, well, let's see, there's, you know, 250 million registered voters. Let's uh, have 7,000 of them that can afford to buy these glass boxes full of golden dice and, uh, they get to come into the room and they're given a ballot where they write their, you know, candidate for president on, and they then shake the box until they get all ones on their dice, you know, and whoever gets all ones first, theirs is the ballot that counts. And everybody else who had a golden box checks to make sure whether the name is spelled right. 
right? Like that's what is happening in blockchain. And all of that energy is going into shaking boxes. Or finding new ways to have the same same kind of randomization with absolutely no relevance to um, to the task at hand as well. Well, even the new ways, the problem is that whether you're doing proof of work or proof of stake, those are both centralizing algorithms, meaning the rich get richer and can increase the influence that they gain from winning this cycle to increasing their odds at winning the next cycle. So if you are trying to build a decentralized system and you have a rich get richer centralizing power algorithm to run consensus, then you're basically lying that you're building a decentralized system. Because the trend is to centralization or at least greater centralization. Sure. Look at how fast you could have on the stage five people that control 90% of the hashing power of Bitcoin, right? (laughs) Um, Look how fast that happened in the history of Bitcoin compared to dollars, which people like to pretend are issued by governments, but they're not. They're issued by banks. And there's far more banks involved in issuing dollars than there are mining pools involved in mining Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, again, like I said, repeats the same patterns, but faster that are wrong with the existing system, including centralization. It's been cool to watch, though. And it's brought a ton of money as well. It's brought so much money into this whole field. Absolutely. But the question is whether that is a pattern that gives us what we want moving forward. Because, and, and it's certainly the, the money factor, the fact that, that blockchain has basically one killer app and it's tokenization. And then we got people to play gambling games with these tokens, right? Gambling is super addictive. And then if you can convince some people that your token is worth something, and then you can have a bunch of people get rich from it, now you tap not only into the addiction of the, of the fun of gambling, but then you tap into, you know, creating, mobilizing new wealth, then that is for sure a vector by which you can spread um, a conversation, and it has. And I think that's back to the earlier thing, what you were kind of labeling success. Um, it certainly has been successful in spreading. So how have you taken advantage of this, uh, this spreading conversation of the compounding of the, um, the fun of gambling and the mobilization of new wealth to further develop Hollow? Uh, well, we created something, you know, like this, this piece of Scepter. We called it something chain, in this case, Holochain, chain, right? Um, to directly take on uh, blockchain as something that actually has speed and scale. So given, like you were saying a little bit ago, if you were to really understand, starting from a different set of ontological principles, how much greater performance that you get out of the pattern of Holochain and that kind of thing, like it does seem hard to me to see how any of the existing blockchain architectures can stand against this type of pattern. So we, we are taking advantage of this in that we created something called something chain, Holochain, right? We did an ICO. We mobilized community assets to build a project that we're turning over to the community to build an open source project 
that powers this kind of infrastructure, Holochain doesn't have a currency. Um, Holo does. You mentioned earlier the difference. Um, Holochain is a is a nonprofit foundation that provides a distributed data integrity framework, basically for for building peer to peer apps, including peer to peer currencies that you could build as an app. Holo is a hosting framework that's basically bridging between Web 3.0 Holochain apps, bridging to Web 2.0 web browsers. Um, and it's set, it's basically setting out to compete against the Amazons and Googles and Azures using the Airbnb model, where we can tap into computing power where it lies, just like Airbnb taps into rooms where they lie. And they never had to build a hotel we don't have to build data centers. We are leveraging this uh, economy and this network and the the attention that blockchain has gotten to have a way of people understanding Holochain and Holo and what it is that we're building. And it, it makes part of that conversation easier and it makes part of that conversation harder because people come in and they're like, but you have no consensus algorithms. So what you're doing is impossible or Holochain doesn't have a currency built in, so therefore nobody will run it, assuming that it's as inefficient as blockchain to run. You know, like there's a whole bunch of assumptions that blockchain has already kind of baked into the ecosystem because it's been around for 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> or baked, baked into the conversation, yeah. I think, yeah. is the... Um, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's really amazing. Okay, so, so wrapping this up, how far off until uh, Hollow is a viable solution for a, an application developer today? Um, so Holo Chain has been in existence in a form that people have been building applications on it for two years already. We did our first hackathon in March of 2017. It's now April 2019, the time we're talking. Um, and we basically abandoned the first prototype of Holochain that was built on Go after um, people had built maybe 60 or 70 different applications on it, some of which are pretty impressive for distributed systems like live video streaming or real-time-ish video games, multiplayer video games, um, things like that, that you can't really do on blockchain. Um we abandoned the Go version to rebuild in Rust to take us to this pattern where we could actually run in web browsers and stuff. So we can compile the web assembly. So we've been building the Rust version of Holochain for the past year. We have recently done our 10th alpha release of the Rust version, along with um, in this past week's having launched a closed test network of Holo. So we have the working components of Holo in place, the first wave of them, essentially, um, and have started testing those. The first wave of closed alpha is internal to employees of the, um, the company. So we are basically getting feedback first from, you know, the installation process and usability and everything from inside the company. And then we're expanding to some more waves of tests, including Soon we'll be shipping Holoports, which are little mini, you know, home server devices we've sold um, over a million dollars worth of those across 65 different countries. So when the Holoports ship, 
we're going to have 3,000 people joining that network, 3,000 devices joining that network. This is all, you know, in basically the coming weeks. We, we I think the Hula ports are getting on the boats from China shortly to send to the distribution centers. Um, and then, but I suppose in addition to that, anyone could just run run the uh, the host software on their, say, you know, reasonable spec laptop. Correct. You can. You don't have to buy a Holoport hosting device. It's just that laptops are often closed seventy five percent of the time, and uh, we wanted to have some devices that would would provide more of a solid foundation and always on foundation for the network before we start having people put them on devices that are on and off a lot. Right. Right. And this brings us to a question to talk about node churn and um, uh, shard redundancy and all these kind of things that we can, we don't, that we can kind of discuss as part of just about any other conversation in a successful distributed uh, hosting platform. So okay, well, we've we've covered a lot here. Um, I'm reminded of a uh, quote that I heard recently from Joe Lubin, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase. He said that in the future, Ethereum will be the only global settlement platform. And what that made me think of was all of that talk back in the day about Bitcoin, whether it was to be a, a digital cash or a digital settlement platform. Um, and the whole thing, the idea that, um, you know, the, the, or the realization I came to um, almost, you know, maybe two and a half years ago that Ethereum really could never be a hosting platform or even a backbone for what uh, this podcast is named after, the third web. It seems like blockchain has found its niche in the uh, the global finance market, or it's it's been applied in the global finance market. Uh, global currency being an excellent application for something that has global state or that enforces global state. But um, I don't see many other applications that require global state and. I wonder what what do you see as someone who's worked so long in the alternative currency space? What do you see as the future of global, stateful hosting platforms? It's interesting that you're saying global currency is a perfect application for this global consensus, and the problem is that a global currency really needs to be able to be used by anyone and everyone, or it isn't global. And that speaks to scalability issues that are endemic to managing global state. So I actually would say that it's not a good example. But but let me just acknowledge that there's some real genius that has gone into the building of Ethereum, right? That the the management of global state through these, you know, Patricia trees and and that type of thing is, is incredible work in global state. But all of the future of scalability really points to needing to break things down into, into state channels and side chains and lightning network and, you know, all these kinds of things, which basically are a way of fragmenting state away from being global, right? Or it can't scale. And when you start off with that ontology of state is local and we can have public visibility of it, global visibility of it, um, you don't need 
to go through all these additional gyrations of, of complexity of state channels and side chains and all that kind of stuff. Because states, state channels themselves are a classic example of agent-centric design. Exactly. You authorize a particular set of agents to be involved in participating in this channel. And then they sign the results back to the main chain. Right. Ah, oh, man, this is, this is the direction that the conversation really needs to go in. It's um, for us to figure out what, what the hell has been going on and what the hell we've even been doing for the last, I don't know, five years since this all got serious. Um, but, uh, well, I, ho- I hope you get more opportunity to, to push this conversation forward. Let me just say that um, what you were just pointing to, um, it, what's interesting is like people are looking at solutions like, like Hashgraph and saying, well, Hashgraph will scale. Well, the problem is Hashgraph only scales up to about two, two to 300 nodes, right? That the gossip about gossip about gossip, the, having each transaction basically do a... a uh, if you think of a big O notation of complexity, order of complexity of computations, right? Each transaction has to go to each node three times, or rather, produce gossip as a secondary transaction two more times after the transaction. So you end up with this exponential com- explosion of complexity as you're adding more nodes to the network. Well, with Holochain, you actually are. Once you pass the the redundancy factor, meaning if you've set your application to keep 50 copies of things distributed on nodes on the DHT, once you pass 50 nodes on the DHT, you're not increasing the workload that nodes need to do as you add more nodes. So it actually, you're decreasing the percentage of the workload they need to carry. So the system becomes more efficient as you add more nodes instead of less efficient. If you don't have an architecture that's like that, then we just can never scale to truly decentralized levels. So the patterns that you're seeing are the decentralization, like we like EOS has 21 nodes signing the blocks each, you know, signing each block. EOS is laughable though. Like I don't think I think that's like the ultimate straw man, right? No, um, because you know, I mean, Neo has seven yeah. master nodes, Tron 27 or whatever, right? Like the 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 pull is toward well. In order to go fast, we have to we have to re-centralize, right? These are really shitty projects, though, right? Like this is exactly. stuff that just got spewed out because people wanted to be able to sell tokens, right? Like it's garbage. It's all garbage. You know, Ethereum has been so was so primitive and um, was supposed to do all the stuff, but it just couldn't move forward because turns out there were really hard problems and i was really impressed by um obviously i worked for definity i no longer do but um definity to me has always seemed like the only um the only true successor to ethereum just purely because they uh they realized oh first of all they had like some incredible stuff to start out with but then they also realized oh wow this is a hard problem we are going to need a lot of money and incredible talent uh, in order to to build something that will actually work. And it's funny, I can just offhand dismiss just about anything out there by virtue of the fact that it uses a blockchain and it hasn't gone through the incredibly rigorous um, organizational growth uh, as um, and doesn't have the phenomenal team that um, that Definity does. 
And it was actually brutal being at Definity and seeing these, like realizing day by day just how hard all these problems were. They're making incredible progress now, um, but behind closed doors. Uh, it's, uh, it's a completely different culture to what we became used to um, as part of the rest of the kind of blockchain application hosting space. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the kind of illnesses of the space is the hype cycle. You know, we, we have been really careful to try to not participate in the hype cycle. We don't hype our coin. We don't uh, hype the platform. We don't do advertising. People are kind of yelling at us about that. And we're like, we are following a show, don't tell policy, right? Like we will show you what we have and what works and take this to scale and We'll talk about advertising after the Holo network is launched. That's what we raised money for in the ICO. That's what we're just starting to launch as a test network now. Right now, it's a closed test network. Then we're going to go to an open test network, and then we're going to go to full, full-blown features for alpha, and then uh, betas. When, when really we're going to consider our currency to be live. Um, but I think when people can actually see that you can do all the things that we think of on the web, you know, the things we use the web for Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Wikipedia, like those kinds of things that you can do things on that scale with that level of storage and that kind of responsiveness um, on Holo as a hosting framework on top of Holochain as the uh, distributed data engine beneath it. Um, I feel like that's just going to kind of spread like wildfire and we've made it fairly easy for people to build applications. People like really want from us to play the same kind of hype game that has kind of been the norm in the space. And like you said, behind closed doors is where the work is done solving these hard problems. And that just isn't as sexy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like this is actual product development, you know, it's actually kind of tedious. It's, uh, you know, and and sometimes you find yourself going down dead ends and sometimes you uh, you realize that, oh, these have just, you know, you've just solved a really hard problem that you don't really want to share with all of these um, charlatans, which is what makes up the vast majority of the blockchain space, be they knowing, be they charlatans that know themselves to be charlatans or otherwise. Yeah, it actually affects our strategy for open sourcing some of our applications. Like Holofuel, our currency for powering the hosting network, is not immediately going to be open source. And it's because we want to avoid that sudden explosion of shit coins, you know, where everybody just copies something before they understand it. And they don't know how to run a mutual credit peer-to-peer mutual valid mutual validating you know currency that has a dynamic currency supply and is based on crypto accounting instead of tokens and right there's a bunch of things you need to understand to run this kind of currency and if you think you're just building another token and copying this code you know then you don't even know what you're dealing with and we want to actually kind of prevent people from piggybacking on the reputational success of something like Holofuel, where somebody's like, well, I've just forked Holofuel and removed the transaction fees or whatever. And, and <laughs> therefore thinking that you have something you can trust 
when you may not be there at all. Um, and so we would like to actually get uh, Holofuel as a pattern that other groups can use. And we will be sharing the source code with partners and that kind of stuff. And then we will be open sourcing Holofuel itself as well as most of the other things that we're already open sourcing. But it, because of that kind of thing you're talking about, the way that the charlatans or the the um, criminals, the, the, the people who just want to piggyback on something to run a fake ICO or that kind of thing, it's like I feel like we have to kind of keep the market safe with the tools we're building and not encourage the proliferation of those patterns. Well, I've got to say, Arthur, this has been a spectacular conversation. We've covered tons of stuff, a lot more than I actually even expected to. I mean, uh, it's funny. I, I know from experience that it can be really hard to talk in depth about an unpublic, uh, an unlaunched platform. I think like you've done a really amazing job as well as putting it in a, in a, a broader context. So thanks for doing that for us. Where can people go to find out more about Holo, Holochain, uh, and hollow fuel, and also do, uh, any personal writings that you might have uh, done over the years. Great, um, holochain.org is the little bit more technical site about holochain, and holochain's white paper is very dry and technical. Holo.host is where you can find out about the holo hosting framework that runs on top of holochain. Its currency white paper is less technical and really talks about a new pattern for sustainable cryptocurrency design. There's actually two white papers um, about currencies that come out of that, that project. Um, and the hosting white paper has never been published. Actually, we still need to do that. That actually describes how we are bridging between the sort of semi-centralized web 2.0 world and the fully decentralized web 3.0 world. Um, and uh, artbrock.com is a place where you can find years of, of blogs on, on this stuff. Scepter.org, C-E-P-T-R.org for that other crazy framework that Holochain is just a part of. Metacurrency.org. Uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Arthur, and uh, hopefully um, I get around to uh, to having you on again and, and touching base to see uh, after the network's launch to see how it's all come about. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks for listening to The Third Web. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow on Twitter at The Third Web, or visit thethirdweb.net for episode notes, further episodes, and also filmed interviews.